everybody to another episode of the Monitor Keeping Podcast. It's uh, just just a kickback episode with me and Kai today, uh, kind of with a request slash uh, just kind of roundtabling. Um, We're kind of responding to a, a, a personal request, sort of. For right, yeah, we do cover them a lot, but um, I guess so, will be a species specific one. Yes, yes. Um, and today we're going to be talking about the Kimberly Rock Monitors, uh, Varanus Gautai, or I guess if the, <laughs> I don't know how they're pronouncing it over there in Australia, is it Glauti? Yeah, I, I've always heard it as pronounced as Glauteri. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I've actually only started recently pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> I've always spelled it incorrectly as well whenever I try to spell it. I probably do too. You know, it's funny when you see like four different, when you go to hashtag something on Instagram to, to tag it and uh, you start spelling it and you realize how many other people spell things wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's an extra E in the Kimberly too. It's not the name Kimberly. It's the place Kimberly. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, that's, that's another, uh, another misspelled. Uh, or another oh, I would have to check now. I don't even know how. I <laughs> yeah, but um. Man, getting right into it, uh, I guess both of us keep them. Um, nowadays, a fair amount of people have been keeping them and successfully breeding them. So it, it wasn't like it was just a few years ago. Anywhere from like five to seven years ago, they were pretty scarce. Not scarce, but just very selective breeders had them. You know, not a right. not a, not everybody was doing them. Kind of like Pilbaras are at the moment. They're starting right. to catch up steam because some people, some good people, got their hands on them and working with them. So yeah, uh, but yeah, man, they're uh, fun, but also very difficult. I think they've given me a run for my money, even after successfully breeding them for two years. Um, yeah, I still have uh, questions, and I'm still critiquing and still uh, ki- killing eggs and, and animals. So. Um, it's a, it's a never ending thing with, with them for, for me anyways. Um, I still have some now, I still have, uh, some babies and an, an adult male, but yeah, I haven't really had great luck with, uh, I guess keeping them like how I do the mangroves a lot more successful. You know, I hatch a lot of, I've had, I've hatched a lot of Kimberly's out compared to what I've hatched in mangroves, but you know, it's like, man, these things still give me a run for my money. Um. It's not even breeding them and hatching them. It's uh, keeping the integrity of their like you know, scales and stuff like that. And so yeah, it's uh, it's gonna be a really cool species to talk about. Uh, there's a lot. Yeah. That's kind of a lot to cover, both good and bad. You know? um, and you know, I think together we feel like we talk about them a lot. But um, this person was right. We we haven't talked about just a species specific Kimberly episode. Um, but I do feel like we talk about them all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So well, I mean, uh, I mean, I guess for like basics, uh, they're you know not like any other monitor. They got this very, very, very long tail compared to most dwarfs or even most monitors. Right. Uh, you know, it's a very uh, workable tail, but man, it's so delicate. Like from very tiny ones and even to the adults. The tail base, or sorry, the tail tip is very thin, mm-hmm. and keeping that integrity or keeping that look, without them losing the tail, damaging the tail, or or whatnot, um, you know, breaking off and drying up at the tip because you know it's dehydrated or 
there's some stuck shed from just one shed, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. It wasn't even really stuck. It just constricted it a little bit and then, yeah, caused the – I find those, even if some people don't think that it's too much, I find that that's a flaw in your husbandry as well, uh, a flaw in mine, you know. Um, and so I'm trying over with some new younger ones that I've bred and then also that I've purchased – to, to just mix up the bloodline um and yeah man i'm just uh trying to keep them better uh you know yeah. it's standard you know they like it hot they like it somewhat humid um and this is that other tricky you know that i guess that tricky doing where essentially you got to keep the cage hot and humid but not wet and right. um, i think we both run into that alan you've had experience with like bumblefoot too right where basically the yeah. too wet yeah. so what and what kai means by that is so kimberly's do need humidity they're they're a um smooth skin kind of lighter skin than if you compared it to such like an ackee like an ackee or sand monitors across the board to me they're one of the the monitors that have one of the smoothest skin especially seems coming out of australia for what we're available what's available to us here in the states um but they remind me kind of like uh the dorianus skin in some areas um very smooth in that regard um and i think it, it because of that and because they're thin-bodied animals they need a certain amount of humidity and they lose um moisture differently than like an ackee would um but it's it's a tough balance because too much moisture as kai was mentioning can lead to something called bumblefoot and it's basically where you see their their feet swell up uh their hands or their feet they'll swell up usually with some kind of like sore infection it can be on yeah like a blister it can be on the bottom of the hand it can be on the top sometimes down the fingers um, and it's an annoying problem to have. And it, sometimes it goes away pretty quick. Other times it seems like it never goes away. Yeah. Um, and then anytime you wet down the cage, um, just to turn the dirt or whatnot, it seems to aggravate that same area, that blister, that infection. So it is something that pops up. Um, I've had animals that have had it. I've had animals that have never had it and they live in the same cage. Um, so it's it's a hard one to pinpoint and that's one of the things that kai and i we, we're talking about that we really try to discuss call each other throughout the week and say hey this popped up because I, I didn't have this issue for a while and then all of a sudden it popped up recently and um you know trying to figure it out and another odd thing is um now nah, that might be saying too much i don't mean anything by this it's just in my case it seems to have happened in the, the two males rather than the two females. Um, and I, I don't know why that is. I'm trying to make maybe some sense of it. Are their habits different somehow that, you know, uh, would cause that? Uh, I don't think it's a male versus female thing where the males are just going to get it. I'm not saying anything like that. I'm just, I wonder if the habits of the males in the cage and how they use the cage are a little different than uh, the females. But that's just in my case. I, I've seen it in um, males and females. I've seen it in other people's collections, males and females. So um, that's one of the issues with Kimberly's. And uh, they, they they are a little sensitive. Um, yeah, real real sensitive. Yeah. So, yeah most of my like uh, issues with Bumblefoot or whatever is uh, 
a direct mistake that I made, basically thinking, okay, I got to make this enclosure humid. Of course, I have to bring the humidity up. Um, and what I, you know, did maybe a, a year or two ago compared to what I do now, in sense of their bedding and soil, is a lot different. Um, at one point, I was having to just spray the enclosure, right, and that would, you know, make it a little bit excess wet. And then spraying the enclosure and having wet bedding, man, that basically made the enclosure wet, you know, almost 100% humidity. So um, it's just too much. And the, um, I, I've got to a point where I made some cocoa chips, right? And those things store a lot of water, even though they may not seem like it, right? But uh, thread, for, thread for thread and how they're built, the little, the little cocoa chips, um, they can seem dry. But inside, if you squeeze them, they're, they hold more moisture. I made a bunch of that, threw it into the enclosure fresh, and put the lizards in. That was that was one of my mistakes there. Um, another one of mine, which is uh, what I just did with my most last recent clutch, um, and I didn't even really know, but I was basically taking the water dish that was stale or you know uh, it had had like a bunch of soil and leaves in it, and I just took it and poured it into a corner. Well. Mm -hmm. You know, you can only really do that so much because that water is still essentially standing there inside the soil. A little bit is okay, but that, that soil eventually, the moisture in that soil eventually spread throughout the rest of the bottom of the enclosure, making the whole thing um, too humid and too wet. And it will basically circulate the moisture. You know, let's say when the lamps are off, the humidity would spike a little bit, and then it saturates the cage, and then, you know, it comes down again, right? And so essentially made everything too moist and too humid. And then what I did was took took those animals out. I put them in an exoterra. Um, my first initial response is to just dry them out. But in in with this, it's there's a very fine balance. And what you have to do is, because even though you're drying them out, you're also working against yourself with shedding issues slightly down the line. Right. So, you know, if you're drying them out and you're taking them back down to like 20 to 30%, to basically keep the infection from getting worse and basically drying it out is what you're trying to do. You're also drying out the animal's tail tips and toes and that essentially can lead to even worser issues where then now you have things falling off and, you know, tail tips that you're not paying attention to that are now breaking off whenever the animal slaps it against something. Um, and so a, a lot of people have experienced that. That's why you see Kimberly's with, or you see a lot of dwarf monitors with missing toes and, and tail issues and so you know i think both of us have had to keep, throw information back and forth on the new balance that we have to basically mm -hmm. think about um and so i i currently have a small young pair now one female that i hatched out myself she's probably roughly about seven eight months old and then i bought another one from uh from a friend from a friend of mine and um that way I have somewhat of different genetics and they're not sibling to sibling or like mom to son or something like that, you know, and um, trying to keep what I'm going to produce later on strong at least. Um, and then I can at least tell people, Hey, they're not, you know, brother or sister. And then that kind of just weakens the genetic line for some people that are purists like that, you know, that's technically what they are. Um, so now what I have is, an exoterra and i have pretty good venting it's essential the same exoterra top but i i covered 
the other portion where the lamps aren't with uh, like a basically laminated cardboard. It's essentially mm -hmm. just taped up cardboard. So that way the, it's, the cardboard's not absorbing the moisture. And then I set that there and then um, uh, that's keeping the humidity in somewhat, but it's allowing it to escape very well without circulating the humidity and essentially creating just such a humid enclosure. Yeah, um, trapping now, it all inside. Right, trapping it all aside. So what I don't, what I didn't want to do was do that. And so I um, used Exoterra in my advantage and then buffering out the dryness with a corner. Maybe if you were to divide, if you were to look at the cage from the top and then you divide it in a quadrants with, you know, four sections, the, the section underneath the heat lamp is the only area that is getting water there. Right. And the rest of the enclosure the other quadrants, if you were to divide the, the, the other three parts, <coughs> excuse me, left relatively dry. Yeah. Um, and so what I still have to do is I have to remember when I pour water into that first heated quadrant area, I'm now um, taking some dry soil and putting it back on top of the wetness. So I, I added moisture there, but I added dry leaves and dirt right back on top of it. So that way, even though it's there, they essentially can't just sit and lay on top of it too well unless they were to dig down there. Right. So um, that's my thing now. Some of you guys, um, it might be hard working with uh, an enclosure like that, or it, it may not work in your situation um, or work in your favor if you're only using heat lamps. But with the Exoterra bottom, because it's glass, I can essentially put a little heat pad down there. That's what I did. I put a heat pad down there. It sits up right underneath that moist soil. If it were the lamps trying to do all of the work heating the soil, which is kind of hard anyways because there's, you know, basking platforms and essentially things in the way absorbing most of that heat that would normally you'd want that to reach the soil. It's not doing that. So I put a heat pad down there and my humidity spike went from 30 to 50, which was my low balance to now 70 with ventilation um and i found this to be a lot better um it's probably a good 70 75 right now and um and yeah whenever whenever the lamps are off whenever the lamps are on it's still maintaining roughly 60 to 70 percent and um, that's exactly what i wanted for what i'm currently practicing now with the kimberly's um, and so, yeah, it's a whole, it's a whole balancing game really, because you have those tail tips and the, the fingers are so you know thin and the littlest abrasion basically causes, it's essentially a big wound for that area. Mm -hmm. And you go ahead and end up losing them. So, um, losing the, 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 tips or the, the toe tips or the tail tips, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, man, that's my, that's my balance with, with how I keep them. And then I, I have a male that. It's me and Alan basically share this guy, and um, joint custody. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's our he's our he's our kid basically. Um, he's, uh, he lives in a, like a I, I think it's like a four by a four by three by two feet deep, and um, only a section of his enclosure is moist soil, and that's yeah. right beneath the lamp. Um, I actually don't have any basking platforms there. So the, the lamp hits directly onto the soil, 
and yeah. then it makes that area a lot hotter. Um, and then also the mangrove monitor cage underneath that one generates a lot of heat. And so it, it rises upwards. And then he has the rest, like it's like 80 to 70, 70 to 80% of the rest of the enclosure is all dry stuff. Um, and, you know, you get, or of course you give them plenty of stuff to get off the soil and things like that. That's important too. But just the soil alone to keep them, when I see people's setups, I, I see a lot of arid stuff, which is somewhat right, but you're missing the other factor in that enclosure, which is deep soil. Right. Um, you know, I've, I've kind of talked about this with just about all monitors, and it's important for just about all reptiles, most of them anyways, to have that that option. You know, it's like a dig box. Some people call it a sandbox. Some people call it a nest box. You know, it's it's a, it's essential uh, for females, for regulating their temperatures to get humid or not. You know, it's, then they can essentially choose. But I see some enclosures where it's like sand at the bottom, and no nesting option, and then it's just an arid enclosure. And right. so that's not, that's, yeah, that's not how they, so when we're looking when, at Australia, it's not how they're kept, yeah. When, you know, a lot of times you're going to hear that Ackies are great beginner monitors, and they are. Uh, one of the reasons they're very forgiving, um, they don't show these same type of issues. Uh, so they have a wide range of where you, you know, the parameters you can keep them in, and they're going to do fine. Um, now that being said, there are good to to keep to learn with, but at the same time, they can also almost cause people to go backwards, myself included, because you get used to keeping an animal like that, and it's hard to sometimes adjust when you say, "Well, this works for this." Um, so I guess if you're willing to take the chance, and if you have the time to really commit to um, every day couple times a day looking uh, at your animals and like keeping your eyes on them, basically reading the condition of their skin on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, Kimberly's can be great animals. Uh, you know, they, they are fantastic um, specimens to look at, but they are curious. They are uh, really tractable in a lot of ways. Uh, as far as I have in my experience right now, they're, um, they're, the babies are still the quickest to to readily like hand feed sometimes out of the egg with crickets um, and you can keep them going like that babies are curious they're not very flighty all the time unless you really start messing with them um, they're they're absolutely great animals and so don't be shied away by some of the, the issues we're talking about as we jump into this I get I think we're just bringing up our issues Kai at the very beginning because these are our current frustrations you know yeah and, yeah. These are um, what most, most people are going to go through. Yes. So, and as Kai's saying, if you are setting up or you want to keep Kimberly, um, you you might want to have, they're, they're not as, well, I'm just reiterating what I was saying. I, I won't go through it all again. But basically, um, be able to give that animal choices um, like Kai has figured out. Um, same thing with myself. And in my Kimberly enclosures, I found that more ventilation is actually better for them than than trapping in that that air trapping in that humidity it's easier to control for me um and then also you know i've tried to go in there and just spray down the top of the cage keep them on the dry side and then spike the humidity 
yes, it works, but that spraying has to be very light and then it has to dry out within, you know, five minutes, really five, 10 minutes. Um, and it doesn't seem to affect them. And it seems to actually work great. You know, you, you have good sheds, you get that little spike of humidity, but if your enclosure traps humidity, um, that can be detrimental to those little fine tail tips and toes like Kai was talking about. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a balance. So in my experience, Exoterra's set up right work great with Kimberly's and, and Tristus as raise up yeah. cages. Um, I'd even argue on the, the, the larger exos for an adult would actually work. Okay. Um, that being said, there's other great options out there. There's, you know, you think if you're getting into that, that quintessential Kimberly rock, a lot of people think that you have to have the, you know, uh, a certain enclosure to go with it. And I understand the mentality and the thought, but that, that enclosure, let's say it's all PVC. It still has to be set up right. Okay. You have to experiment with it. Are you going to be able to get a heat pad? Like Kai was saying under the PVC to accurately heat the temperature for the dirt that they're going to need, or are you going to be better off using a nest box and humid hide? Is it going to be easier to control that temperature and get a heat pad so you can get the heat to where it needs to go while keeping the rest of the, the cage in a certain manner, maybe on the dry side. And then you have this humid area um, in the box or wherever. I mean, all of these things are thoughts and bridges you as the keeper are going to have to cross with keeping this species where, as I was saying earlier uh, with Aki's, they kind of find in a lot of different, you know, setups and across the board, something that a Kimberly might have some issues with and Aki's going to do just great in, and you'll never know the difference. They're never going to give you any signs that anything was bad or could be improved because they're so hardy in that, you know, uh, and resilient. Um, so one thing is, yes, Kimberly's will make you dial in. <clears throat> if you're a conscious keeper, they're going to make you dial in your setup um, and their care, uh, or you're going to, you're going to have some issues. Um, <clears throat> I think we skip right into that though, Kai. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> so it's it's the important part. It's we haven't really even gotten important. into the eggs yet, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a very important part. Um, you know, and yeah, I guess leading into the rest of the stuff as you're raising your Kimberly, um, there's no there's no rush. There's no necessity for a real no. rush. They're on the like if we're comparing them to other dwarf monitors, they're delicate. Mm -hmm. Not only are their body and you know their the integrity of their tails and toes very delicate but um just them as well especially the girls you know bringing them too much can shorten their lifespan feeding them incorrectly shortens their lifespan dang looking at them wrong shortens their lifespan yeah. <laughs> and um it's and they, a long journey don't, yeah, yeah don't scare people off too much <laughs> you know it's so it's yeah it's uh you're really keeping up with with uh if you're thinking about it and let's say you do have mistakes or people that started off and made a bunch of mistakes, you know, you wanted to try it again just because the species is so awesome. But, you know, now it's, like I said before, years ago or just a few years ago, this information and this stuff wasn't regularly practiced. You know, right. some people were doing it. It's just not, not everybody was teaching it and, and relaying it to the, to the person that's just kind of starting off. So, I saw a lot of Kimberly's basically chronically dehydrated or, you know, just kept mm -hmm. like, kept like Aki's and, 
and uh, so they're in a way it's just they can't really be kept that way you know and so yeah uh, yeah getting into you know raising them and stuff like that i just i feed them mostly bugs but i also give them like chopped um chick pieces and chopped mice pieces as well um mm -hmm. i think getting into the ones that i was raising first i fed them more mice and chicks than i did insects at first just because i didn't have the grasshoppers yet they weren't really liking the bugs too much and what they loved to eat was basically um yolky egg and they'd like uh egg dipped in um the, like the pinky parts dipped in egg and the chick parts dipped in egg they love that stuff and that's what i got them to essentially grow off of and they kind of just ate that all the time until i started introducing grasshoppers and stuff but you know, it's like uh, I think I was just feeding them, and they they ended up, or one of them ended up really hefty. You know, where it's like it took forever to get their weight off. Mm -hmm. uh, so now with the ones that I've been raising, I try to just stick with dubias and grasshoppers, mm -hmm. and I've only given them egg like maybe once or twice. And really, it's just maintaining their their overall fat and and looking too pudgy right i want to keep that to a minimal and what they're used to when they're young even though you can you can't really overfeed a monitor they'll carry that same habits those, those same habits into their sub-adult and adult stage and that can kind of set you up for failure when the animal goes clammy or it basically shuts off and it only wants to eat certain things and then you're in you're in a little bit of trouble um yeah but they're they're we don't have that option here really too much but they're lizard specialists they love little geckos and you know little anoles um and things like that but um i feed them mostly insects now just just because i'm kind of scared to make them too hefty uh, and I'm, so I'm doing <laughs> oh i'm interrupting go ahead no, that's okay. Use that thought. i was just gonna say i'm doing i've done all those and um I still use a lot of that stuff throughout the collection, and but it seems like since last fall, I want to say late late fall, um, I'm almost feeding exclusively uh, lobster roaches and um, um, pinky mice, and usually the pinky mice, they all get fed pinky mice, but I try to double up with the the females um, in and around reproductive events such as before they're going to lay as i notice them um either that uh that pre-swell or you know any one of these things that i see actual copulation um you know they might get a, a few extra pinks and then after laying also that's usually the first thing that i'll give them to them unless they just need to eat something right off the bat then i'll throw some roaches in there um but lobster roaches seem to work great and um you know, they're, they're relatively easy insects to keep. They're very prolific. Um, <clears throat> they can climb walls. So I wouldn't recommend dumping a bunch in a cage, but <laughs> I can tong feed them. Uh, my only issue with, with tong feeding them is I have, so I have 2.2 altogether and a little unconventional. I know a lot of people would keep 1.1, 1.2, but never two males together in a lot of situations. I don't have any issue with it. Uh, both males have bred. I, I do watch them constantly, um, but everybody seems to get along fine, and it seems to be working really well. Um, 
but I ran into the issue of once I drop one roach in, one grabs it, and then it's like off to the races around the uh, around the cage as it's running with this roach in its mouth, trying to eat it before the other ones can grab on. And uh, so I'm trying to throw as many roaches in there as quick as I can, um, which is kind of funny. So one thing that I've done recently is I have a little container that I put the, the lobster roaches in. Now I have to constantly shake it because they climb the walls. So I'll get like 10 of them in there and then I'll throw them in the cage. And then yeah. sure enough, you know, they're, they just attack. They love the movement. They're, if one does start to climb a wall, that animal's like jumping off a rock, grabbing that roach. Um, but uh, their weights are great. Um, I don't have any, you know, excessive buildup as far as mass or just fat. It looks like in the animals. So I'm I'm really liking the the lobster roaches. So I've I've had to, you know I said I feed them mostly lobster roaches. I've cut back. I feed them actually right now about half lobster roaches in Dubia. And forgive me, the the reason is I had to start another colony of lobster roaches, so I had to cut into that a little bit. So that should be for another month or so that I'm kind of feeding this, and then hopefully I can get back to just lobster roaches and pinks. Um, but it seems to be working great, man. I'm, I'm really happy with it. I'm happy with how my animals look. Uh, and I was telling Kai uh, the other day, uh, for, you, for you listeners, I have my original female. I still have in the freezer. I, I have <laughs> I have a lot of animals in the freezer. <laughs> um, but I, I pulled her out, and I'm looking at her size. And she's about twice the size of these two, two younger females. But they're cranking out the eggs. And um, another thing that's interesting with with the uh, Kimberleys, and I've, I've actually seen it recently with Ackies too, you kind of get used to a female laying a certain amount and certain look to their eggs. Sometimes a certain uh, female, just across the board, are going to lay more oblong, like oval-shaped eggs. Sometimes other females are going to m- m- lay like thicker, you know, um, more like a ball type of an egg. Different shapes, and you'll get used to your own animals. But um, these females have given me really small eggs to larger eggs. And I've had, uh, it's interesting, I've had eggs that have been incubating for, you know, two, maybe two and a half months now. And then I have eggs that were laid recently from the same females. And the eggs that are were laid recently are bigger than the eggs that have been in there for two and a half months. So, um, yeah, it's just an interesting thing I'm picking up on. And like the clutch that just hatched one of the babies it can curl up and basically sit on top of my fingernail and or my thumbnail that's how small these are now i expect the other ones to be bigger because the eggs are already bigger uh so i expect those to be bigger babies but it's just it's pretty interesting to see you know the variation and just size of the animals um what they're capable now animals are healthy um so, yeah, I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there for everybody here. It's just something I picked up on and was watching the other day, and it's kind of kind of interesting, you know? I wonder how the, the other eggs – there's three in particular from another clutch that are just – you know, they're like the size of an ackee egg, which is a lot bigger. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how that all plays out. But, man, I forgot how, how small they were, Kai. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've had uh, some hatch – some in the same clutch, like um, they'll – vary in sizes i've had one where one clutch where there was maybe two or three little eggs kind of like mm-hmm. a large uh, peanut m&m and then i've had some that are you know more like ackee eggs yeah and in the same clutch yeah so those i just considered runs or something like that they still hatch did fine 
um, just a little small, you know, just a lot smaller. And overall, um, yeah, overall just tiny, man. So see, I don't know if they're necessarily runts is the thing. I would say maybe. Well, I don't know. Maybe if it's all in the same clutch, and you have yeah. smaller egg, which I actually have one of those clutches where there's one smaller egg. Um, but like recently, I had some ackies that. They're two sisters. They always lay like within a day of each other, if not the same day. Um, one laid a clutch of, you know, really large eggs, but I think it was like five. And the other one laid, I think, 10 um, really or small eggs are about half the size of the other eggs. So uh, but I was used to both of them laying about eight, nine eggs of similar size. So it's kind of interesting to see. I don't know why, but uh, I, I don't know if they have a, a reason for it, you know. Maybe it's a competition. Maybe the smaller ones can eat smaller bugs or I don't know, you know. Um, I come up with a million thoughts, but as long as they hatch healthy, that's all I'm worried about. Um, what should we even should we save the eggs for? We're, yeah, we'll, we're save, we'll save the eggs for last. Yeah. Um, Incubating yeah. eggs. So um, I, really, I really just, uh, I mean, I, even right now, right? Because. I had some issues with some females that my breeder females, and then, um, you know, the whole toe and tail things for some of the animals. Um, and really, it's just me maybe not paying attention a little bit to the to the smaller guys in that enclosure. Didn't realize that the humidity was going too crazy or the closure bottle was too wet. You know, so uh, my adjusting is really you know all coming into play now that I'm getting. Uh, some animals back and certain certain things like that. So it's really just us going through the motions again. I think last year, this time I was hatching out a ton of eggs, and now the 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 the, the tables have turned a little bit where I'm recouping a little bit, and then Alan's hatching out a bunch of stuff. So yeah, man, it's uh it's basically a just a a revolving circle of Kimberly right. headache. Yeah. We, we're always, I mean, we, we have a lot of monitors, but the one we talk about or, or the one we have frustrations with the most is the Kimberly. Um, it's true. <laughs> yeah. and, and even other keepers that are seasoned breeders um, have troubles with them when yeah. some people that, you know, they're, it's not that they're not seasoned. It's just uh, they're, you know, they're, maybe they don't have a big name or they haven't bred a ton of species are doing them perfectly fine. Um, yep. So... You know, it really just depends on on how I guess how you work it and how you're working the species and then the eggs on 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 changing it up. You know, um, and so I've had to do things quite different, quite differently from what I would normally assume onto these Kimberly Rock monitors. Just just way different. So mm-hmm. yeah, man, it's a it's a it's a tricky thing. I, I, that's, that's exactly how I see it. Like on a post I did the other day, and I basically had a couple eggs go the distance, and then um, you know I saw one kind of bursted a little bit. Typically, I take that as it, it's pipping. The fluids came out, and then it went back inside. And typically, when that happens, they're, they're, they've drowned. Um, mm-hmm. For for me, my experience. When they pip and go back inside, they're they're gonna drown. Um, so, what I did is I took all the eggs from that clutch, which was two to three eggs, and I um, basically give them a little clip in the shell. The shells were very soft, so 
they came to the point where I don't I don't clip them or I don't pip the eggs myself until until they've reached this very soft shell like. So though the eggs right. would have though the eggs will go through a couple different phases when they're first, you know, normal uh, kind of like a ping pong sh- feel, right? The ball, it's, it feels like a ping pong ball. Um, and then the egg will grow. And then as it's, you know, three months in and you're at 90 to 100 days or 115 days, it really depends on your temperatures. Um, you know, you'll, you'll see the egg, basically the texture of the egg and the feel go from that firmness to like a latex feel. It'll mm-hmm. feel like leather and uh, more uh, palatable to you. I mean, sorry, more like you can basically pinch it and move it around and the egg essentially is soft. That's when I am going right. to be basically pipping it myself if I need to. Um, so what I did is just got that entry hole, cut into a little bit more, cut it into a little bit more where I make a basically a little half circle around the top of the egg, expose what's inside. A lot of times if it's moving, I leave it alone. It's, it's alive. It's going to, it's, it's just, you know, maybe taking its time, but if it's not moving, I'm going to, I fidget with it with my pinky or I use sometimes use like a little metal chopstick and I tap it. If it doesn't mm-hmm. move, I'm just going to basically rupture the egg, rip it open and you know you're kind of just exposed with a dead baby. Um, that was one of the eggs, and then the second egg, man, that thing was mutilated. This thing was, <laughs> this thing was head, scrambled guts and tail. That's that's yeah. what it was, and uh, the it it looks like the the whole rib cage and everything like that was basically turned in on itself, kind of exposing all the guts and everything like that. And it uh, looked like it, the lizard was ran over and then put yeah. back in the egg. Yeah, that's what it looked like. Um, and so I don't know what causes that, really. Um, people say that it's uh, your spikes or loss of humidity and heat in some cases. Um, for me, I, I'm not sure. I'd really run my incubator kind of the same. So I'm not really sure if that was the issue. But, you know, uh, I would say that, man, sometimes – you can't really control any of those losses. You know, I think Alan incubated some eggs where there is his normal thing. It's his normal, normal incubating thing with all the other eggs. And so there are some eggs that didn't make it and some yep. eggs that made it in the same clutch, yep. same week or same few days that they're hatching. So, yeah, yeah. it was uh, just recently. So I had a clutch where it was four eggs um, and four Kimberly eggs. And uh, we were at 108 days. So my very first clutch of Kimberly eggs uh, took 100 days on the dot. And everything pipped. It was seven eggs, seven babies hatched. Had no troubles whatsoever. So fast forward, what is this, almost two years later, um, after I raised these up and then they laid eggs and then waiting for the eggs to to incubate, um, basically this first clutch of four they went the distance they were doing fine um 
but it seemed to go a little long. And at a uh, hundred and I think it was 108 days, I was getting a little worried. So I can- candled everything again. And sure enough, I saw one egg where there's a fully formed baby inside. And, but the, the rest of the egg, there were no veins whatsoever, no red veins that you could see. You could perfectly see the fully formed baby pigment, everything. And the way a light shines through, uh, on the egg to illuminate it when the, the red veins are gone, it's very easy to see. Uh, it almost looks like an x-ray. And, um, so I, I went ahead and cut that egg open and sure enough, that baby was fully formed, no deformities, but dead in the egg. So we call those DIEs dead egg. (laughs) And uh, so I, I chose Mm -hmm. to do a little experiment in which the other eggs, because we're still at 108 days. One, um, the the three other ones had veins still. Um, The one I cut almost all the way open where I saw the baby's head. It was looking at me when I cut it open and blinking its eyes. So I left that egg in there. One, I just slightly manually pipped, and one I left alone. And I wanted to see if there would be any difference. The baby that I cut open to reveal its head, the one that was looking at me, ended up dying. Um, never came out of the egg. So, But the other two hatched out fine. Now, a lot of people say just don't leave them alone. Um, you know, let them do their thing. If they're going to make it, they're going to make it, which I understand. But this was for my own knowledge and kind of what's maybe an inside look at what's going on in my incubator were babies not being able to get out were they weak babies. Um, how did the egg tooth look? All these things I was looking at on the babies. So egg tooths were all intact. Um, so that first one might've just been an anomaly where, you know, it, for whatever reason it failed to thrive. The second one might've totally been my fault. I might've got in there cause the other two hatched fine and just messed with it too much. Yeah. And something happened, and I have to accept that. Um, yeah, there's, and, there's. I think we've run into like all, all sorts like eggs dying soon, eggs dying at the end, yeah. eggs kind of going midway and then dying. It's like what the hell. All right, so I, I yeah, and I have this little Ziploc bag in my freezer <laughs> with like twenty dead baby Kimberly eggs from all my failings throughout the years of trying to hatch them. Yeah, and um, yeah, man, it's like uh, they're all size, all all sorts of sizes, from really tiny, runt-looking babies that didn't make it to really big babies that didn't make it. And so, that's yeah. me with peacock monitor eggs, man. <laughs> I can't, I can't hatch a peacock or Timor to save my life. It seems, but uh, but yeah, I'll keep it on Kimberly's. Don't get distracted. Um. But yeah, you know, their eggs, another clutch that I have, um, I was, I shared it on a episode or two ago. I was having some spikes in my incubator through the winter. It works fine. But where I was saying the, the fans inside the incubator actually generate their own heat. So, and they were set up differently where they wouldn't shut off with the thermostat. So once it would hit that 85 degrees, if it was about 85 degrees in the warehouse or outside because of outside temperatures, it wouldn't cool down, but the fans were still going and therefore generating their own heat. So it'd spike about three degrees. Now, during this time, I was starting to get some eggs that were starting to burst a little bit and leak some fluid out, um, which I've had before, but never been a problem unless it's fully burst open, which I had with one Aki. So in this certain Kimberly clutch, sure enough, um, one of the eggs, it burst pretty severely on both sides. 
And um, so a lot of fluid leaked out. I could actually see like pink matter leaking out. So obviously I know, okay, that's uh, not a good sign. That one's probably going to go. Now I left it in there for a while to see, but sure enough, it went bad shortly after. Um, oh, I did fix the incubator issue. So <laughs> I don't have that same spike and issue anymore. Uh, I got, I'll just share it with everybody. I got one of those um, Bluetooth uh, temperature and humidity uh, devices that's actually in the incubator. I have it sitting next to me right now because it's like 92 today. So I'm, I'm watching it. It's creeping up. It's creeped up 0.5 degrees, so half a degree. So as long as it starts cooling off back down, we're not going to have an issue. Um, even I would say probably a temperature, uh, a full degree probably wouldn't be an issue. But uh, the other thing I did was uh, every container that I'm using now has some type of small pinholes. Um, very small, but they're there. Uh, to equalize that pressure. And what I'm doing in the incubator inside is I have those large um, containers of water that are that are open. They're sitting on a rack just as an open container of water, basically, like a uh, like a big bowl, basically. And um, it's adding the humidity into the air inside of the incubator itself. And um, so I'm I'm just keeping the, the substrate inside the the containers just a slightly moist. I mean, just slightly enough to change color because it's still sucking in that humidity from the rest of the, the air in the, the incubator. And since it has those pinholes in there, it can do what it needs to exchange gases. Um, I have no like egg sweating. Now I have no other issues that I've noticed since I've made these changes. So hopefully it'll mean a whole lot of good Kimberly eggs from here on out. And if that happens then it's going to lead me to believe like there is some, some, maybe pressure issues that affect their eggs differently. Like again, ackee eggs, they don't seem to care one way or another. I have spiked ackee eggs up past a hundred degrees and had them hatch out just fine. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I think you got to basically take a hammer to those things to, to kill them. But, um, yeah, I but guess Kimberly- uh, for, you know, for people that are having Kimberly eggs and they have bursting issues, right. And it, it's common. It maybe mm-hmm. not talked about all the time, but I see it post yearly and every single time there's a major breeding season, you know, or someone will message me. Um, there's a certain degrees or, or severity is on when you interfere and when you don't with the eggs. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's almost, it's always going to be your call. So you make the decision, you know, if you make the decision and obviously things die, it's, you got to swallow that. Um, yep. Sometimes, you know, people just say leave them if they're strong eggs. They're strong eggs. They're going to make it. If not, they basically not. It's not meant to be. Um, some people leave it in that, um, and they kind of go with that faith. Uh, for me, it's a little bit of both. I have to understand that I want these eggs to do well and run their full thing. But sometimes you have to save those eggs. Yep. Or keep them from getting worse. You know, um, and so being able to work on the fly or think on your toes comes really, really important here. Now I don't want you to freak out ever. So try not to freak out. Um, but when you see an egg rupture, like Alan said, you can have them burst on both sides. I've had them burst from the bottom and basically whatever was in there fell out. So it was almost not savable, right? Unsavable. Right. Um, it's going to dry out. I tried to put it in a little, uh, you know, the little science thing where you have this cup and this film and 
you set it in the film and then put another thing and you have humidity build up in there but um that didn't work the egg basically just dried out or the baby dried out so it's a living baby with the egg yolk on this film in my incubator and trying to revive or keep it going you know mm -hmm. um that didn't work so that, that was one of the situations where you just got to swallow it, just eat that. And um, But there's issues where it's not so severe. Let's say the egg just burst a little bit and you see fluid come out. That egg happened to probably take on too much water at one point, um, became turgid, which is this ob off shape from what the animal is. It basically looks very odd, um, kind of lopsided, right? Mm -hmm. Um then uh, I've had them burst just a little bit when I was taking the eggs in and out of the incubator, put the lid back on, put it back in the incubator, and then all of a sudden it just burst. Mm -hmm. From the pressure change and whatever else I was doing, putting the lid back on. I also now have pinholes in my stuff too where when I do put the lid back on, it no longer makes this sound where you're, you know, you're closing it up closing a Tupperware container and it makes that air sealed sound. That's not a sound you really want to have pressurized onto your eggs. Yeah. So that's why we make those holes. And so it's not making this sound. And then, you know, it's, it's, it is trapping the air, but it's also now shutting off the pressure and it's just changed a whole lot. Yeah. Um, okay. Now the eggs from what I've experienced. Okay. You, you can do things like patch it. You, I've seen it work. I've tried it myself, and it's also worked. Um, some examples like using glue with a little bit of um, athlete's foot to keep it from molding, right? And it, it makes a paste, and then you smear the paste above the hole, and it's essentially supposed to close it up, right? Um I've had things where I took a piece of scotch tape and basically just applied it over the thing. Yeah. The thin, the thin wall of, of the thin paper scotch tape is the same type of thickness as the egg. So it's almost like adding a shell piece back over. I've used a old Kimberly egg, watered it down, soaked it overnight, cut it to a patch size, used glue, Put that old shell. Oh over, wow, you're full over, arts and crafts. <laughs> yeah, over the egg. That has also worked. Um, but what I do now is just freaking leave it. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Lamb told me that that's when the egg burst and that fluid comes out. That's the egg's natural way to heal itself. It's actually it's it's waiting. Sure, when you're looking at it, it's it's a it's a little blob, a little bubble that's come out. But give that time, that bubble over that that peak that it made from the pressure changing and the egg bursting a little bit, that little bubble will harden up and then become its own fix, its own little yeah, its own yeah, glue. It's, it's uh, yeah. own little yeah, it's basically what it is, its own glue. And so I no longer if they're small like that, where they're pinprick holes, it's not much you can really do. You're gonna mess up the egg if you keep on messing with it anyways so mm -hmm. you want to just leave it um and then again if if you want to try some of those out and you want to essentially think about possibly sacrificing that egg in terms of you learning go for it 
that's basically what I did. I took without without me having these eggs burst, I wouldn't have known now what to do. Um, which I just gave you like a handful of examples on on how to patch eggs essentially. Um, there's there's these things on YouTube as well, like where they show you how to cover up a window, and eggs will literally be look like they're fully formed, but they actually have a hole. Not a hole, but there's less calcified shell on one part of the egg that you can right. we call it a window because you can see inside and you can see the veins, and it's just a very thin layer of calcium on the shell but the rest of the egg is white so this is this area is pink and gray and so i've seen people use that that glue and they just use a little bit of elmer's glue apply it over there and it, it makes a fully hardened shell shell like and then you know the eggs hatch fine from there um i've also had where i left that window like it is and when the egg went into a pressure that the eggs didn't like it burst from that that window so you know it's like a thing where you can patch it up and put elmer's glue over it if it'll if you think it'll help you know so yeah it's not is, gonna hurt but you i do the same thing now like i have the the one i was saying burst on two sides uh there's two other eggs in that clutch that also burst a little bit but just like the the little pinhole where the fluid came out and they've since hardened back up and I've switched the, the top on there is now a top. It's a SIM container, but it's a top that um, has some holes burned into it. And uh, so I've had no other, no ongoing issues from that one point uh, since I've adjusted some things, but yeah, I just leave it and um, animals that I've left in the past that I've had similar things, they've all been absolutely fine. Um, so just one of those things, but you know, should there's some people also, I guess when we get into it, I haven't had, it's going to sound like I've had my own trouble with, with eggs, but I haven't had this issue yet. It's when uh, eggs start to get too round uh, and essentially they're absorbing too much moisture. Um, now, naturally, like we were talking about, you would expect those eggs to then pop, but sometimes they don't. Yeah, and they then, don't. They just go the way. Yeah, um, yeah. The, for I guess if you have, and I've actually had, I actually had this Australian guy. He's an American, but now lives in Australia. Um, so he's Australian now, I guess. Um, <laughs> and um, you know, he does just. He's a pretty cool guy. Man, I totally forget his name off the top of my head, but I think it might be Adam or something like that. Um, the trick that he gave me, which you might have seen if you were to follow a lot of my posts last year. On all my Kimberly hatchings, you'd see moss and paper towels and stuff like that around the eggs. Well, I only did that at the very last week of hatching those eggs. So it's not there the whole time. It's not absorbing their moisture the whole time. It's when I feel, and you have to calculate the time that they've been incubating and you know the, the standard time where people report that they hatch. And then you're going to kind of estimate with what you, you're incubating at temperature-wise. So let's say you're incubating at 84 or 86, and they hatch at about 100 to 108 days, something like that, right? If you incubate cooler, they're probably going to take a little longer. So like let's say you incubate at 82, then they're going to take probably a few more days. Uh, if you incubate a little higher, 
they may hatch out sooner and that may not be the greatest thing but people do it and they still end up fine so um sometimes incubating too hot makes them come out of the egg way too fast but um if you're you know kind of going with the time frame on how long they've been incubating and you think they're on their last week and you, if you candle them they're they've taken up most of the space in the incubator right but again going back to what i was saying the texture of the egg will let you know if it's ready to hatch or how far they've developed when the egg has gone from ping pong hard shell shape feel to now a leathery texture a total different consistency and texture wise that's when you're gonna want to do these next steps mm -hmm. so what i did is i took these eggs i lifted them put dry moss underneath them and dry paper towel on top of them and so what that did was it sucked out any of the extra moisture that was in those eggs any of the excess that was in those eggs and uh, helped me essentially dry them out so if they feel very very tight the eggs themselves even though they're this texture if they still feel very tight then you're going to want to apply the dryness and what that is is it's going to soak suck out the the extra moisture that's that those eggs will be relieving themselves of anyways um you'll see sometimes when eggs are ready to hatch they'll start to sweat the con the condensation will have developed a little bit more in the container right above those eggs and um i'm i'm really just catching that i'm taking it out of the eggs and so sometimes i'll have to I'll feel the moss, and if the moss feels different than when I put it in, which was dry, then I'll take it, I'll replace the moss. Or if the paper towel has gotten, has soaked up a fair amount of moisture within the day or two, I'll take it and I'll exchange the paper towel. And so I'll put a dry paper towel back or I'll put dry moss back. And uh, that has helped me out quite a bit in saving some eggs from what I think would be drowning in a sense, where... You know, you're kind of gonna you're you're trying to let them do their thing, but you're interfere, interfering at intervening at the same time, because these are what other keepers have had success doing, um, and it's something as simple as laying a a cut out piece of paper towel above the eggs, they're at and during their last week of incubating, um, to to suck out the moisture. I'm actually debating on doing that now. I have one Kimberly egg that's still alive. That's still going from a different clutch um, that was laid really just by itself. No other eggs with that clutch. Um, and it's now, it was laid uh, January 25th. So it's, it's uh, I guess at uh, the. You should be any day. Yeah. Yeah, any day now. Any day now. So um, I'm uh, probably preparing for the texture feel. And then once I feel that it's getting a little bit softer, I'm going to apply some dry moss and stuff in there and see if that'll help. Um, the egg has the egg is a little weird shaped; it looks like a nipple, kind of. <laughs> yeah, I got a couple of those. They hatched fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope this egg hatches fine, man. I, I'm uh, I've had, had a real not not the a wor the worst year, but it's just uh you know you run into complications and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a bummer, but what are you going to do? It's all a learning experience. And, you know, I had a great run with Kimberly's. Don't get me wrong. I, 
that's the best thing in the world is hatching Kimberly's out consistently for a couple of years, roughly. Um, and that was great. It's just, you know, you, you don't, I think I let myself get maybe too comfortable with how I was doing it and not it, not seeing the possibilities of, of faults and mistakes that you could possibly make. Um, I've, I've been there. I'm having, <laughs> yeah, I'm having females, man, just unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And um, that shortened their lifespan by a whole lot, I think. And I, I was trying to keep them from uh, from laying so much, stopped feeding them so much. But, man, they just kept going, just yeah. kept going, man. So it, was, it wasn't much that I can really do other than to turn down the heat a bunch quit the food but then the animal is like supposed to be recouping i'm trying to get it to recoup but you know it's like so if if i'm not feeding it but it just laid you know so i should technically feed it and so those little feedings basically set it into a whole nother that's yeah they're they're really really tricky for me uh that's that's the word i'm gonna use i'm kind of uh (laughs) taking this episode to vent a little bit just because i recently just uh you know, lost some females essentially back to back. Yeah. On, on sort of like unknown reasons other than what I speculate, you know. Um, so, yeah, technically I'm starting over from scratch a little bit with animals I produce. So it's not that bad. Um, I could still say that, you know. Um, but yeah, it's this trickier. I'm trying to do things uh, a lot better where I basically am paying attention and trying to do things where my my new rotations and new um keeping styles and habits are 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 always thought about always looked at week to week man as soon as they 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 look like they're gonna go into shed i, I change my yeah my my humidity back up or or i'm paying attention to them day by day as i i was squirting in moisture and i was trying to think man where i live right now is very low in humidity. Even in the wintertime, it's very low in humidity. So only when it's raining is the humidity up. But other than that, like today, because it's so hot, and or just recently because it's a lot warmer, the humidity is back down to 30s, 20s, 18, you know. And so I, I have to think about the AC being on because – we have to stay cool. I kind of technically right. have the AC. The AC is helping all of my facility or my, my reptile room and part of the house keep cool. So in a way, I'm temperature controlling the whole place by having the AC on. Naturally, that dries out the air. So with my dryness in in outside humidity and then dryness within the house, and then if the cage is not kept warm enough with moisture in the soil then you know i was just having issues and then i was spraying this thing thinking that all right this will bump the humidity which it does it bumps it up maybe from 30 to 50 but even then that's not enough from what i can look at their tails and stuff like that the it wasn't constricted but it just wasn't a great shed you mm-hmm. know and so that's that's what i'm looking for is a shed that I don't have to tend to. Um, for a while, I was raising baby Kimberly's without this issue at all. And essentially having them in this enclosure 
but then that enclosure basically got too too wet itself and so i wasn't paying attention dumping the water dish into a corner that essentially spread out to the rest of the enclosure like i was saying earlier so yeah it's a it's a tricky balancing game man yeah very, very, i've had great. enclosures like like you said baby setups that have worked great for a while and then because i changed something else i'm not really paying attention to it it seems the same but i changed something else in the room and now they don't work as well or they're they're actually working like crap you know at some point um so it is all a balancing act and i think to share with everybody out there what what kai and i are after is we want to be able to produce our own babies and then have that chance to raise those babies perfectly i mean just your picturesque monitor right um and then have good success and keep those animals going for a long time. I mean, this is with their parents too, but we're looking for, for me, I want to, I want to be able to breed and produce these animals. I want to be able to sell them and share the, the, give other people the opportunity to keep these same animals that we love. Um, but my own goal is I want to be able to produce some babies. I'm going to be holding back a good number of babies to different groups. Um, and my goal is to raise them up perfectly, uh, to be attentive to all their issues, to be attentive to um, how their personalities, their uh, cage mates and dominance behaviors and learning all those things so that I get them down to a T. And this might take me, you know, 10, 20 years to really understand what I'm working with here. And so I can say, OK, they need this at that this point. This is what I'm seeing. This is you know, um, why they're doing this. This is what causes the bumblefoot in some animals and not others uh, in the same cage. This is what you want to do with eggs and have basically this near perfect experience with some of these animals as we can have. And one, they deserve it. But two, we got to put in the work to get there. And so I, I know that's what we're doing. And um, kind of also what you were touching on, Kai, man, they're, they're so like right now my females – they're awesome. Their body weight is great. Their tails have never really deflated. Even after laying, they have the side folds, but um, you know, I can feed them up and within a week it's, they're like back up and running and they don't look like they just laid a clutch. Um, they're truly amazing in that, in that sense. Um, but I'm starting to get up to the point where, you know, the females are laying. I think we're at, we might be at four clutches a piece, you know? Yeah. And at what point, I'd say that's enough. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's a female nesting uh, right now. And so I'm going to let her finish doing her business. She's refusing food. She disappeared today. So I think she's nesting now. Um, but I, now I have to go into summer. So it's not like I can cool her down necessarily. But my, my goal right now is going to be to actually separate the males out, keep the males separate, don't give them access to males, and really just start um, – you know, I know they'll eat easy. They'll eat six lobster roaches in a sitting, but maybe just give two each to the females um, as they're still kind of recovering right now from that and trying to maybe not not push them into that next cycle of things. That's what I'm hoping to do. And so through the summer, I'm just going to basically be maintenance feeding them, um, hoping that they don't lay another clutch going into winter going to cool them down for approximately three months is what my goal is kind of like I will with some of the snakes and then bring them back up. And my goal in this is to, and Kai and I have had these conversations. 
my goal is to see if that prolongs the females predominantly uh, their lives to see if that leads them into another year of successful breeding uh, yeah. where they can go through these regular life events. <laughs> and we discuss like, we kind of theorize why this happens is the area they come from, you know, the Kimberly is its own unique habitat and the little habitats that are in there. Um, and so it, I would recommend to everybody go on and look up the Kimberly area or go and look up the Australian herpers that are out there in the field and what they're seeing, where they're actually seeing some of these Kimberly rock monitors. You see a lot of times where you'll see a Kimberly rock monitor on a rock with the blazing sun right above it. I don't think that actually happens very often. Okay. Yeah. They're going to bask during the day. Yes. But I think once they reach that body temperature, which is probably done in, in the morning time, they're often running the rest of the day and they're, um, you know, you'll see some of these guys, they're, they're kind of in a wooded area where there's a lot oh, of yeah. leaf litter, a lot of large, like granite looking rocks, gray rocks. And they're on the rock face, not basking, they're, they're shade covered. But, uh, you know, so I don't think we call them rock monitors. It's like, ooh, throw some rocks in there, throw the heat lamp on there. They're good to go. No, they, they use not only that open rock area that's basking and baking in the sun, but then they're, they're right into the cover. You know, yeah. and they're um, not a, they're not aquatic, but if you were to look at the whole aspect of their environment in those rock gorges at the very bottom, that's a creek down there. Yeah, um, absolutely. And that that probably has to do something with when heat and everything like that cooks that water. You know, it slowly rises and probably gives them more humidity in places that are cooler, where they're a crevasses animal, crevices, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, although most monitors are microhabitus, you know, the Kimberleys really love these flat, like, reed stacks slash, you can just pile cord flats on top of each other or plywood flats or, or even make in your enclosure platforms that have an inch space in between each of them, and they're going to wedge themselves in between that. Mm -hmm. And that those little pockets have a lot more humidity than what we think, you know, um, they're just not, yeah, they're just not a, like, like when you're looking at arid dry desert, that's like a, a Euromastic, um, right. Or like, a you know, a, an inland bearded dragon or something like that. You know, uh, it's just a lot drier. Now, don't get me wrong. Those animals have accessibility to deep soil and they go through crazy weather changes as well. Um, where they have availability to that, but not all the time. It's like when you're looking at an arid desert and you see a, you know, not to get off topic, but it's in relation to how some people keep Kimberleys, you know, a Euromastix habitat is a whole lot different than a Kimberleys, even though, you know, people think about it as a Australian, you know, desert and stuff like that. It's not just that. There's a whole lot more to Australian habitat than just arid dry desert. You know, even though it has some of the largest deserts in the world, there's just more, much more to it. Yeah. And, uh, so, yeah. That that microhabitat, though, like you're saying, with the water down at the bottom. If you've ever been down into a, a creek area like that, where there's uh, large rocks above you, um, and then you're down there towards the water, and the usually there's plants growing alongside of it, trees. When you're down there, there's a breeze that comes through there. There just is. There's there's different thermals throughout the day. So it's going to be much cooler 
down in there than it is just up on the rocks. You know, 10 feet up on the rocks is going to be a lot hotter than on the side of the shade, uh, getting that little breeze through the creek. Um, you're going to get different basically thermals that go through there. And these animals know how to use those things. So they're, they're going to incorporate that into their daily lives where they can go bask for, who knows, 10 minutes during the morning hours, just enough to get, because you, you got to think, even if it's only 90 degrees outside in that morning hour during some of these days, um, probably even less than that, the, the rock face that's been facing that sun is a lot hotter. So they're actually getting some of that belly heat coming up as well as the sun beating down on them. They reach that operating temperature for their needs and they're off and running. And um, one of the most distinctive things about the Kimberly rocks in the first place is their coloration overall. And they have their backs, their bodies, they get that um, reddish, you know, kind of brick red variations in that color. And then those like slate gray almost spots on their back. And I don't think it's by mistake that then their tail is striped like a zebra, you know. Um, they utilize that. There, there's a reason that animals built that way. So if you've ever seen a king snake, everybody knows what a California king snake looks like. That kind of pattern, uh, that that coloration, they can disappear. Even though it's a black and white snake, it can disappear in dry grass, like like tigers are striped also. They can disappear, and the way they're striped, it plays tricks on the eyes. So I, I have to think, like, what – I can't wait to go over and see some for myself and just see how they move, see how they move through through brush and grass, see if their tail kind of mimics that. Uh, I'm sure, Kai, you've seen them, like, actually moving their tail, kind of vibrating their tail, twitching their tail. Yeah. You know, all these things, um, I wonder – I don't know. I just got so many questions. They, they just – their, their coloration is so unique. It has to be purpose driven. <clears throat> yeah. That's I why, I'm, that's, why I'm, that's why I'm in love with them, man. I, I can't, I mean, we should have talked this about this first, but man, um, the color scheme on the Kimberly's is why I love them the most, you know? Yeah. It's my favorite colors this burgundy with gray. And then it's got this black pinstriping all over. Um, and then the tail has got this zebra look. So yeah, it's a, uh, and I will say, very, very they're, nice animals. I love them because of that, but I also love them because of personalities. I I happen to think I can walk into the sand monitor enclosure and I can expect them to act a certain way based off whether I have food or just in the enclosure. And they're going to be huffy and puffy. And if I have to grab them, I can go grab them. No problem. Um, the Ackies are going to act a certain way. Usually if they're hungry, they'll actually come running and jumping out of the cage. They're, you know, they're food, 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 food. Watch your fingers if they think it's food. Um, but then they're fine. And then they're just kind of lumps. Kimberly's on the other hand, their personality, they're curious. Yes, they will take food from you. But even after that, if you're just working the cage, usually they're going to be right there next to you, looking at what you're doing, sitting next to your hand, watching what you're doing, tongue flicking you, maybe walking under your arm as you're doing something. They just got this truly unique personality. Um, when I go to bring the roach bin over to them, they cock their, their necks in a certain way and turn their heads downward to look at the roach bin, waiting to just to see me pull a roach out of it. You know, sometimes they'll run up to the glass and I'll see them angle their, their heads at certain angles just to look around the room. Um, I don't know. They're, they're fascinating to me. And uh, I, I, I guess I'll get in a little trouble here. 
in my opinion, this is this is my opinion, not anybody else's. Um, just because things are rock monitors, they're not all the same. Uh, Pilbara rock monitors are gorgeous animals, no doubt. I'm sure there are some wonderful animals out there with personality, <laughs> wonderful personalities. They are just not to that same level to me as Kim's, and probably why I haven't jumped the gun on on really getting a group of them together. They're gorgeous. Don't get me wrong on that, but their personalities just seem, I don't know. They're mean. Yes. <laughs> Let's just get yes. it right out the door. They're mean. Yes. They're, known, they're known to be biters. And yeah, my Kimberly's, uh, I've never, I had to treat them for wounds. I've had to peel scabs off of them. I've had to, you know, break off the very tip that was dry and nothing. No, yeah. not a really aggressive, um, even to cage mates, they're not that bad. You know, I've seen a video and a thing where a Pilbara was eating its zipling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh. I, think you've, I think you've seen that too. Where, yeah. 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 Um, I forgot to tell you, Kai, the other day I walk in and my, my larger male, his jaw is kind of swollen. So, and I can see like dirt kind of caked onto it. Like, what is going on with that? So I get the tweezers in there. It's a little easy because the the caked on dirt uh, or say tweezers but uh the feeding tongs and so i wedge it open and half of the upper jaw is just covered in this like caked on dirt and it's a little swollen and red around the teeth and the gums area so i just slip a the the tip of those um tongs in there one one side of it and just flick out this material because i'm gonna clean it out anyway and um, it had bit down onto something or maybe another animal bit its mouth while it was chewing something and it caused it to swell up, get inflamed. But there was like a pus pocket in there that this material was clinging to. And as soon as I scooped out that layer of dirt, like pus just start, started like coming out of this thing. And so I'm now cleaning that out. And, um, I mean, it was, it was kind of medieval in the way this happened. I didn't use anything just being totally transparent with everybody but the animal's fine he was trying to get away i put him back in there he takes a roach right away and it went away within i think three days total you know yeah. the whole swelling went down and everything so um they are they are resilient you give them the right habitat they're going to be pretty resilient animals um but still <laughs> they're yeah, going to things aren't, aren't perfect you know we're still having troubles keeping their tails and toes intact and uh, hatching out only some some eggs you know yeah. most people wish for a hundred percent hatch rate and hatch hatch success and overall um, you know just the turnout is great man it, that's not the case so far with Kimberly's with us <laughs> <laughs> honestly before we got into it I think we were talking about Kim's when we first started talking talking about the show and everything we we're did I have I might have had Kim's then. Yeah, yeah. You had some. You're basically going through, though. You hatched some or preparing to hatch some. I think I, they were just and, laying. Yeah. And then, yeah, then you were losing your the female, and then I took the male. Yeah. Um, right? So, yeah. Then, uh, so, <clears throat> really, um, you were raising up those ones. Remember, they ended up, like, one had, like, a hole in them, right? Oh, yeah. Then, yeah. yeah that, that's that clutch. I'll, so, I'll show you this real quick. I bought two guys. I bought an adult pair from Brandon over at Rare Earth. Awesome animals. Um, 
so I bought an adult pair from him. And sure enough, they they had already laid, I think, three clutches that year. When I got them, within a month, they laid an, another clutch. Um, so that was my first clutch of seven. Uh, I, in, in my stupidity, for one, I thought four clutches, this thing's done. They're, you know, like some of my other animals, they kind of, they seem self-limiting. Not this girl. And at the same time, this is summer of 2020. Because of my job and the state of the um, world society at that point, uh, I was not always able to, to even get home or get over to the animals for sometimes days on end. Um, so she apparently went and bred again, and um, I didn't support her. So now I have a deficient female who basically died um, with egg complications. She, she, I had her in a certain setup trying to, trying to save her. And, yeah. you know, but it, at some point it was already too late. Yeah, um, very, very common with a lot of uh, new keepers getting into Kimberly's. This is one of the things not really talked about, but yeah, a lot of, a lot of people get into wanting to breed them and bam, it's like, what happened? So she had pulled so much calcium out of her body with now this is going to be the fifth clutch. She was deficient and I wasn't supporting her the right way. I wasn't there. Um, I should have done some other things afterwards. Regardless, I failed her. Um, so now, but I have seven eggs, all eggs hatched. Everything is great to go. Um, the babies are doing fine for, I think, six to eight weeks. No issues whatsoever. All tails, toe tips. Everything's great. Um, I'm thinking these are the easiest babies in the world. And then one just randomly dies. Like <laughs> it's in perfect condition. And uh, and then another one dies and it had that hole in it. Like Kai was saying, I think that was from a buffalo beetle actually because they're quick. Now that I think about it, and I've seen some other things. Um, and then I had one more just seemed like it was um, stressed out all the time, real skinny. It would do like this wave of getting better. And then we go lethargic again and then get better and get lethargic again. And ultimately that one passed away. So the four I have now were those four original baby, the remaining four. Oh, lucky. 2.2. I'm like, yes. But understand that it took probably about a year and a half of raising these things. The heartbreak from losing the female. Hoping that because I'm hearing all these problems with eggs. Talking to Kai then. I think some of these talks are actually what started the whole process of maybe us put this podcast together too um yeah, yeah. we hear from you know what we would consider experts in the industry and their problem with eggs eggs getting um eggs drowning basically um ha having to dry them out like towards the the last i say third of the the incubation period these are all things we're hearing um eggs just not making it and failing uh weak eggs um what else would you put in there? Uh, oh, the bursting the, eggs. Yeah, bursting eggs. All these things we're getting that it's that they're just iffy eggs, iffy animals. So, um, fast forward to now, Kai, like you're saying, you've had plenty of ups and downs with them, but been pretty successful. But now your your adults are giving you the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think of failing the adults. It all started from how I raised them. You know, I raised them to be. I mean, I did it. I didn't really push them to breed. That's because for like a whole year, I thought I had a pair. Yeah. The, the 
the larger female looked like a male, had spurs, had bulges. The smaller one looked female body shape wise, but had really big bulges. Mm-hmm. And I was showing people like Krusty and other, like John and stuff like that. And they, they just, they're like, Hey, I think you got a 1.1. 1. 1. Um, and so I went with that for a while. And then I, threw in a, a actual young male with him and they started laying for me. I didn't hatch any of those that first several months. I didn't hatch any of those eggs out. I killed them all because of how I was incubating and how I was learning. Um, going into what I know now, man, and this is not to, this is not to talk about like the SIM container or anything like that, because I use them with just about everything. Um, to incubate my eggs like monitors monitor wise um but i have had to switch and uh, we used it basically different materials we still may even use the sim container because it's such a great container to use but i no longer just have water at the bottom or sponges at the bottom i now use uh i use like perlite mixed with vermiculite and things like that and it's no longer sitting on the grid and it sits inside the, the, the perlite. And then I've, you know, then I got to a point where I had so many eggs and I'm, you know, I love science and I love uh, to, to kind of test out these eggs and, and they're mine. I, I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to, even if I lost some of them, I learned. So right. that's the, the, even if it's money that I possibly lost, I now learn what to do and what not to do or what works better and what doesn't work so good. So, you know, for me, at one point I had four different types of setups to incubate one species just so I can uh, weave out what doesn't work for me. These are yeah. all examples that someone else recommended that worked for them, like over water in a sim, over sponges in a sim, um, over moist eco earth in a sim. And then I started using these gecko these little things with the, the gecko imprint egg mm-hmm. and you can just basically pop the egg in there. That's what I use now. This, this person sent, sent me these to use and they basically work really well. So um, that's currently what I use now. And then it's technically like a sim. It's basically the same type of thing, but it's just a smaller container and uh, you know, a whole lot less going on inside. Um, and I'm not sure what, what is making them hatch. Now I've also hatched them out in a sim container on moist perlite and then i basically took took um you know dry moss and i put it underneath the eggs once it got to hatching but man i had to essentially let them run their course and then at the last stage intervene so that way i make sure they hatch or else they may may not have um and that's a tricky thing if you're not paying attention you think they're they're just gonna do things naturally because you think you got it down now no it's not at all (laughs) Not, not, <laughs> not at all. You, they're like, check yourself, bro. You gotta get back to work and pay attention. You know? Right, right. Well, yeah. So right now, all mine are all my Kimberly eggs are in sim containers. Um, now some are in the traditional sim container size. Some are in the XL size. And my only reason for that is those are actually for the sand monitors. But I have no sand monitor eggs right now. Um, but I needed the space. So they're in there with like a couple different clutches of Ackies as well. <laughs> so I, I might've shot myself in the foot. So 
coming up. I might have to do a little uh, shell game with the eggs as some start to hatch. I might have to take those animals out um, and put them in another container as one becomes free from another clutch hatching and do this little sh- an actual shell game. Um, but I, you know, right now I'm, I'm using sim containers and I'm just on top of the same medium that I've been using. I think it's called the Pangea hatch. It's that yeah, uh, rocks. Yeah. Like kitty litter type of, don't use kitty litter. Yeah, not yeah, it's not, it's not yeah. kitty litter. It just looks like. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, that's what I'm using now. And my purpose for that is my approach. Like I tested all these things out. Uh, I'm doing the same thing just with these two items with the sim container and then with this material. So I know how to treat it, how to, and then inside my own incubator and um, you know, just, putting the pinholes in there seemed to help adjusting my actual incubator seems to help for me. Um, so that's what I'm doing, but I would have no problem, you know, putting them into some other container directly on top of the substrate. Also, I'm doing that with some, some Aki eggs at the moment, just cause I ran out of Sims. And no, like, I guess people ask us why, or if you guys are wondering why we tried so much, even though there are successful ways Basically, we're drowning our eggs, having eggs die. Still to today, having eggs die. Yep. And so it's it's important for us to see what else works as well. Right. Um, and that's uh, it's just if you're, you know, we're not perfectionists or anything like that. We just want to get better results, and um, and we're trying to. If you guys are, you know, go through many many people's reports on hatching Kimberly's out or not hatching Kimberly's out, actually. Um, their biggest thing is eggs dying right as they're about to hatch. They're drowning. Um, so, yeah, it's it's a tough one, man. So, you know, this is what we hopefully get to share with you guys, and we hope that everybody out there, if you're listening to this specific episode, it seems like we're talking about the problems more than anything. Um, but it's, it's important because these are the problems you're going to – we hope you won't run into – but you probably run into these are the common problems across the board that people have had with with the species that we are experiencing. So we're trying to give you as much information as we can. Their care, we haven't even hit on like their day to day so much, <laughs> but it's it's very similar to other Australian dwarf monitors. OK, um, and, and I might say monitors across the board. You give them their their temp ranges, their ambient temp ranges a place for them to get away to humidity um, for your own setup. You're going to have to read your animal in your own setup. So uh, if you're going to use an exoterra, if you're going to use a PVC cage, if you're going to make something else, you're going to have to see how that soil in there dries out. Does it dry out completely uh, within a couple of days? Does it stay wet for weeks? Um, also the consistency or whatever soil material you're using you're going to have to play with it yourself, but we try to give you the tools through not only this episode, maybe, and the things we've talked about in the past so that you can recognize the problem and at least be on the track to free thinking at, as far as how to solve it. And even to that degree, Kai, we've talked about um, Kim- Kimberly eggs. Okay. They have a history of being hard to hatch and there might be different materials we can use, but also the incubators themselves, the rooms they're sitting in. What are your ambience for the room? Where do you live? Do you live in the desert like Kai does? Do you live up here? I don't even know what this, like Mediterranean valley. Kind of valley yeah. Um, do you live in North Dakota? Uh, are you going to get a long winter? 
type of things. So we're trying to give you the tools that we come up with, the conversations that we have. So hopefully it'll help other people be successful. And like I said, there's not a lot of people that prior to some of this shared a lot of the, 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 I'm, I guess it sounds like I'm patting ourselves on the back, but there wasn't a lot of shared monitor information. Um, there was a few times, a few people, um, sometimes like we, we try to be just blatant and, and throw it out there. Sometimes people deliver information in a way they trying to, they try to get you to think they're not giving you the direct answer of what they did and the steps they took. They're just trying to put something in front of you. Sometimes that can be frustrating. I don't necessarily learn the best that way. <laughs> I, that's the way I teach. <laughs> I, I, I've had to learn myself to learn in that way to find, but, but I think through my own frustration, getting hands-on, it's actually what I end up doing. <laughs> now that I'm hands-on, I try these different things. So I, I guess I do learn that way, but I do it to myself. I don't know. Yeah. Um, when people ask me, it's like, uh, I know what you're trying to get to. I just won't give you the answer. It's not as, okay, don't take it as I'm I'm a jerk or whatever. I, I'll help you, and I'm helping you. It's just I won't just give you the answer because it, it's not so cut and paste. Right. It's not so black and white. So when we talk about eggs bursting or, you know, eggs drying out, I mean, if you live in Florida, you might not have this issue. If you live in Colorado where the pressure is different and it's drier, you may have this issue. Or because <clears throat> I live in I live in where it's really, really dry, it's different for me. <clears throat> and so you'll have to essentially work out all of the things yourself. So right. if I can, I'll give you the leading <clears throat> the leading part to where you need to think for the rest of your of, of what you got going on now in terms of you the keeper or the person that's asking it's much more rewarding it's a much more rewarding for you to have got it all yourself <clears throat> i'm sure that you know you're help you're grateful for the little bit that we did give you but if i were to just give you all the answers i mean you might not learn anything you know, or they might be wrong for for their right. Might, yeah. might not really be so cut and paste where you can just apply it. Now, um, yeah, it's that's the way I, I like to teach. It, it makes people think. It gives them also the whole purpose and and the result is a lot more uh, <coughs> satisfying. You know. Good luck, people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would get like people lead me to stuff and I'm like, what? Huh? What? And you know, I get this deer in the headlight look sometimes. Uh, I get through it. I stumble through it. Somehow I make it. Um, but, <laughs> oh man, Kimberly's have yeah. taught me a lot. Uh, I will say that um, as far as monitor keeping. Um, but yeah, you know, simple things guys out there, of course, Fresh water, we talked about, we fed them everything under the sun that has been fed to monitors, the common things. All have worked. Um, all are pretty much in that, that range of safe. I still give them crickets every once in a while, give them something to chase, just something different. They'll eat superworms. Um, females, you know, they're, my females are now in hold cage nesting. There's about 10 inches of dirt. It's not much. 
um, but it's enough that I don't have any problems. Uh, I have yet to get an infertile egg, actually, from my Kimberly. That's something I've noticed. I do get Aki infertile eggs. I've gotten infertile eggs from the Tristis. It's a monitor, but I have yet to get an infertile egg from a Kimberly. But I, I wonder if they're turning around and eating the infertiles, too, because sometimes the clutch is only four eggs. It seems a little small to me at, at times when they just previously laid, like, a seven-egg clutch. So maybe maybe they are. Um, I know that I did have one animal eat two eggs. I don't know if they were fertile or not, just because I found them in poop later on. Um, it's part of the risk of keeping animals in groups. But I, my personal choice is I'm going to continue to keep my four in a group unless I see something else happen where it's now become a safety issue. Um, I do use UV on these animals. Um <clears throat> I've said a lot of things about UV in the past, uh, but there is technically a UV LED light bulb in there uh, with my reader. It's only about 0.1 that's actually hitting to where they would be on the basking area. Um, I'm sorry, um, um, one one point zero point. Um, I can't say I see them relatively on that side of the the slate that I have set up under mm -hmm. their form more than just under the basking area. Um, and it's not for the it's not across the whole cage. It's one of the smaller LED bulbs. But I like the way it makes the inside of the cage looks and these kind of cool rocks that I had somebody make for me. Um, so I, I'm keeping the light in there because I like <laughs> I like the way it makes the inside of the cage look. Um, just giving you all the info. I and then I'm using the um, uh, they're 50 watt bulbs and they're set up in one of the Uline crates that I put together. Um, so. That's basically my setup. I raised them in a tub configuration. It's like a 20-gallon tote from Home Depot. Um, I've shared with people before. It's like a converted type. And then uh, after that, after about two, three months, I put them actually in Exoterras and raised them in the Exoterras, which actually I had no problem using the Exoterra. Uh, I use it on them and some baby Tristus. I love the way it, it it worked out. Uh, it was easy to spray down in the daytime without getting any issues, uh, but it was a light spraying. They always had fresh water. Like Kai was saying, I moistened down a small section of the dirt, and then they had leaf litter and moss thrown across the top that they could bury into as well as things to climb and get away from the actual ground. Um, I'm just spitting this information out, Kai, because I was like, man, we didn't really even touch on the day-to-day the -day stuff. <laughs> It's just regular everyday to day stuff. I think, yeah. um, yeah, what I got going on with mine, like, um, I have you know, standard little shallow water dish, um, something they can just get in and out of, and that's on the drier part of the enclosure. Um, and then the other, you know, the other parts are pretty dry too. And then only moist part is underneath the heat lamp where the heat pad is now. Mm -hmm. So I just looked at the soil. And how it's set up now, because I've only had this going on for maybe like a week or so. Um, I like it. I like it. Yeah. I like how it's it's working out with bringing the humidity up. There, the female that's currently shedding is laying there. I'm hoping when she does shed that uh, it's as easy go and everything just fluffs off. That's what I'm looking for. The idea. Now, uh, yeah. So, oh man, it's uh, it's it's really tricky. With uh, with how they're currently set up, the 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 house is dry, 
the exochera does let off a fair amount of trapped moisture and humidity. So that's good as long as I have moisture going into the soil and that's developing its own humidity, you know? Um, yeah. I think that's where I can get to a, a, a better understanding and and how they're shedding and everything like that because, man, that's um, <clears throat> that's the toughest part is when you're looking at it and it's like you think you're doing well and then all of a sudden there's like a dry tail tip and there's not much you can really do but wait for that to fall off, you know? Yep. Wow, how honest do I want to be with people? <laughs> hmm. I don't know. I don't know what to say. No, I, I've been honest so far. I got a sharp pair of scissors on standby. I'll just put it like that. <laughs> yeah. Just, um, yeah. So it's a very quick snip. Pat it yeah. with pat it dry. I pat it dry with some calcium dust. Uh, coagulates the blood. Keep it from getting wet and damp and getting getting infected it typically heals over very well yeah uh, yeah uh there's yeah there's a lot of things that we do at home again that you know just saves money time to go to the vet stuff like that sometimes you can't even get to the vet now yeah with the whole covid stuff and how they've had to redo their they're taking in clients and stuff like that i have my current vet <clears throat> won't take any new clients for the last two years he hasn't taken any new clients I'll post up and I, I typically share when my when I go and he's a very renowned uh, uh, vet in Southern California and many people want to go to him because he's great with a lot of stuff and the prices are very very great um, and uh, they've they told me that they've been turned down trying for the last two years to bring in their lizard or bring in their chameleon or whatnot and I can just go in any time I want you know so yeah it's it's really tricky you know. Yeah, so I'm not. Out. I'm not telling anybody else what to do. I'm just saying what I have done, and um, you know, <laughs> it's just the truth. Um, and it's it's better to get rid of that necrosis, that rot that's going on in there, rather than ha have it continue up the tail and take off more of the tail. Basically, nip it in the bud, um, so to speak. So I want to thank you guys for listening. If there's anything that we missed on Kim's, I know we talked about a lot of our own struggles and what's going on, but if there's anything we missed, go ahead and reach out to us. Um, understand we have families, we have animals to take care of. Um, so it is our own personal time and we have to, to jump on and really get into stuff. So can't always do it or can't do it uh, right away. Um, you know, I still got a regular job to work, but we're going to try to help out as much as possible. That being said, as of lately, if I get hit up with a, like a one line, hey, what is this? I've never talked to you before. I've never met you before. I have been ignoring some of those. I just think it's a little impersonal, and I'm, I am giving up my time to, to try to help. And my, believe me, I want to help anybody that, that needs help, that's into something. Um, I'm more than happy to help, but uh, just have some, have some couth is the way I'll put it. Um, other than that, no, I, I don't sell off female known female Kimberly's or anything like that. Um, so I, I, I don't sex animals till they're basically adults and sex themselves by egg laying. Uh, for me, Kimberly's are, I had a feeling I had 2.2 for a while, but they're still very hard to, to 
tell until they're a little bit older and a male really sets into his male features. And then comparatively, you can look at the female and say, okay, you know, a couple years into it, maybe two, three years, you're going to be able to tell more accurately. But at a year and a half, even, uh, they were still hard for me to, to accurately sex and putting them in other people's hands that have a lot of experience. That's the same thing, you know? Um, so hold on to what you got when you don't get discouraged. If you get a group of Kims and you're raising them up, don't get discouraged, be in it for the long haul, give them, you know, a few years to get going and really, um, um, put the time and work into just keeping healthy animals. And they're, if, if you got them, they're going to do what they're going to do anyway, if you got a pair. So believe me, they're going to, they're going to be spitting them back out. And yes, I just received a message from Kai that it won't let Kai back in. So I'm going to wrap up the show here. <laughs> Kai got kicked out. Uh, <laughs> guys, uh, we want to thank you. Uh, as always, we're brought to you by the Morelia Python radio network. Uh, oh, hey, Kai, you did get back on. I was just going to close this out because I got your message. Um, Kai, where can people find you? Let's start there. Uh, they can find me on Instagram and uh, Facebook. I think they're connected now where you should be able to type in Kai Fan and it'll bring up both. Oh. Um, but uh, if you if you want to find me on Instagram, uh, I'm under uh, big underscore lizard 103. Um, and then uh, you can find me mostly on Facebook. I'm a lot more responsive on Messenger uh, under just Kai Fan. And then um, I do have a couple pages on like YouTube and, and another Facebook page called Mangrove Mecca. That's Mangrove and then space M-E-C-C-A. Um, and uh, yeah, you can also find me underneath the NPR network over here on this uh, monitor keeping podcast that we've got going on for the last year. Now. Yeah. It's crazy, huh? <laughs> uh, me, yeah. you can find me at origins underscore rept- reptile on Instagram and then origins reptile on uh, Facebook. And then again, on podcasts, uh, the monitor keeping podcast here, which should be on every major uh, podcast app as well as uh, YouTube. So you can look them up there under Morelli Python Radio. They're going to have all their shows under there. And if you have any questions for us, Kaya was already telling them they can hit you up strictly just you, not me at all. Um, you, you wait by your phone to answer questions. Uh, <laughs> actually I told them, Hey, it's getting a little time consuming. So, uh, you know, I, I love to help, but understand it's going to be at my, my leisure. Yeah. And it's not even leisure. Yeah. It's like when I get a free second in life, um, to help out and, and honestly to have, to have some manners when you reach out, cause we are taking our time to, you know, um, yeah, just a simple like, uh, hey, what's up, or you know, stuff like that. It's just not like you know you gotta be super polite or something. It's just uh, we don't like um, just getting right to the point without you know, like, hey, what's up? How's you know, right? You know, stuff like that. Right. Yeah, we're we, we were raised uh, certain ways, and so uh, <laughs> manners is everything. If they were demanded of us, we kind of are expecting it from just about the rest of the world. Yes. Cause I'm going to give you my time. I'm going to give you a good answer or is the best answer I can give you um, yeah. in regards to your question. But you know, and I, I guess for me um, with uh, my time as well, you know, it's not that I don't want to help you and I'm not like trying to charge people to help them. I think that was what people were thinking when I made those posts. It's really, 
scheduled timing. Mm -hmm. I have so much to do with shipping and grasshopper stuff and also my own monitors. And then I also have a lady and I have life and, you know, I got to take care of certain things. And um, I want to be able to get to that because I think, I think Mike Stefani was saying we've become slaves to these animals. Yeah. The more in depth that we come, the more in depth that we get, the more and more that we start hatching out stuff, buying new new things, man, those deserve our, our our undivided attention first. Yeah. And with that, we still have our normal life that you know we've had to take this time away from them to devote to this stuff. And so it's just um, you know, you may have to be patient. Um, I'll get to you. I typically respond and say, hey. I'll message you later on, or if you can just give me the details and we can just message each other back and forth. Um, typically when people are kind of demanding or expecting uh, a right away answer or given me, giving them the right, the right answer right away. Um, it just might not work out that way unless you catch me at the right time, which is like three in the morning and you may not be up that time. <laughs> you know, that's when, that's when people message me less and I'm up and fresh, you know. It's just because I'm 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 a I'm a I'm a night owl as well. I really, I really don't sleep like how people think, um, or how most people you know have a, you know, they go to bed at ten and wake up at seven or something like that. I basically have to fit in four or five hours of sleep in between the whole day, so I may be up from midnight all the way till. 3 p.m., right, and then have to sleep from 3 till 7, eat dinner. So that's really only about four hours of sleep. Go and eat dinner, do what I need to do with Lynn, probably go to sleep from 9 till midnight, and then do it all again. So really I'm, you know, kind of kind of, kind of uh, sleep-deprived <laughs> a little bit. You know? Constant and, uh, state of yeah, deprivation. So, so I... I constant state of working and and making sure that i'm up on every single task that i have to do including stuff like the podcast right other other interviews and you know the people that i've already you know devoted my time to make sure that i follow up with them and stuff like that so yeah you know it's uh every week there's a new pile up of of keepers and people that are asking for help and stuff like that and i can really only spread myself so thin and so i have to really devote time to the stuff that's in this household yeah you know? um and uh that's why we try to make these podcasts Absolutely. and i thought that i i thought that the podcast would lighten the load but actually it's just made more <laughs> <laughs> yes it's just it's just made more questions and you know people are like uh, it, it actually helps out a little bit because then they can pinpoint what they want to ask. And, you know, um, you know, maybe it would be helpful for us to really, we go so broad and, and sometimes with our guests or just by ourselves and what we talk about, we're all over the board. So maybe going forward, we should make more specific, you know, podcasts just so we can we'll reference we'll back. Get back into the, we got to get back into the question Q and a stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, we really just been trying to make episodes as we go, as we see fit. We kind of cleared out with the 20 plus episodes we did in last year. 
We covered a lot of species, basically current events that are happening with people. We cover that, you know, then the species specific, the breeder specific. But yeah, if you guys have questions and you feel like you want to line up half a dozen questions, you know, we can't answer 20, 30 questions, but we can thoroughly answer about half a dozen to a dozen questions. Um, and if you guys happen to have a list and you don't want to come on, you can just give us a list and we'll go through yep. it. But if you want to come on and hop in the hot seat and basically go through back and forth with us on, you know, what a normal beginner or a person that is beginning to breed or, you know, you just you just have issues, right, with, with your animals and stuff like that, let us know. And, guys, please understand when we do have people on, sometimes it's a scramble, too, just because of everything. We're like, hey, real quick, we got to back it up an hour because I got to go ship these off or, hey – I got to, this, you know, animal did this. I got to take care of this real quick. And then the guest has their own life doing things. And then half the time I forget to even message Eric that we were trying to record on a day. Just <laughs> we're running around, yeah. but uh, somehow we're getting it done. But uh, yeah, we gave our, our information. Let me just say uh, to all the listeners out there, um, if you're wondering about our podcast or other, other podcasts, we are brought to you by the Morelli Python radio network. Um, there's a number of podcasts on there. There's a new gecko, uh, podcast, new boa podcast, along with the original NPR, um, you know, uh, carpets and coffee of reptile fight club. Uh, I shouldn't have started listing them actually off cause now I got to remember each one of them. <laughs> Sorry if I hurt your feelings. There's a lot of podcasts out there. Go onto their website. Okay. Check them out. Um, you can also, if you have any questions for, for Eric, you can uh, email him at info at moreliapythonradio.com. Uh, you can go look up Morelia Python Radio on Instagram and Facebook. Give them a follow and a like there. Also, the YouTube channel where you can find all the podcasts along with some of their, their actual um, uh, video recordings of some of their podcasts and their guests and everything. Um, all right. I think that's it. Uh, Till next time. I'm going to go check on that girl hopefully there's something to dig up but uh kai you have a good one oh uh, yeah man they're all good all right see you guys later Bye.